What's up, everybody? Hey, are you guys excited to be here or what? Let's rage. Somersault. This is the, hey, this is what we're doing this summer. Follow with me, okay? You start low, and you bring it up, and you say, let's rage. That's what we're doing. All right, if we haven't met, my name's Jordan Howell. I'm on staff here with Salt Company alongside my awesome team. Everybody give it up. Let's go. Um, I'm going to say their names. Direct your attention to the back of the room right now, left to right. We have Sabrina. Yep. Jamie. Kyler. And Nils. Yeah. And we have three lovely interns this summer. You don't know I'm doing this. But when I say your name, stand up. Isabel. Dab it out. Yep. Kylie, where you at? Kylie. And Caroline. Caroline, where you at? Yeah, girl. Sweet. We are stoked to hang out with you guys. Uh, we do this thing called Somersault every Thursday night in June and July. Here's what it is. You're probably not shocked yet, okay? We gather. We sing praises unto our God. We sit under the word of God. And we enjoy fellowship with the people of God. So our hope is that you would find yourself in deep community this summer as you strive to follow Jesus with us. And two things that I just kind of want to highlight about Salt Company culture, a couple simple statements for you, okay? Number one, we are a family, not an event. That means, yes, we gather here on Thursday nights, but we are so much more than a Thursday night gathering. We are a group of people that live on mission together as a family. We long to make much of the name of Jesus, and we do that better together. You are not meant to follow Jesus alone, so press into community this summer. Number two, we take Jesus seriously, not ourselves, which is how I'm able to stand up here and say, let's rage, right? We don't think we're a big deal. We are super ordinary people striving to follow an extraordinary God, and so that's it. You don't have anybody to impress. You have nothing to improve. We're all very ordinary. We live in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, okay? Let's own it. But this is where God wants to work, right? He loves working in ordinary places with ordinary people who want to see him do something special. So excited uh, to be with you this summer. As you can see on the screen, we're going to be spending this summer in a series called Connecting the dots, seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. So if you own one of these, it's called a Bible. Uh, it's the inspired word of God. You probably have one at your house, uh, whether you know it or not. But there's this unique thing about the Bible, okay? 66 books written by over 40 authors spanning 1,500 years, 10 civilizations, three continents, composed in three languages, and they all tell one story. They tell the story of redemption, a plot line surrounded by a person wrapped up in Jesus Christ, the redemptive person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what this Bible is all about. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to use scripture to prove it to you, okay? It'll be on the screen. John 5, Jesus is confronting these hyper-religious people, and these guys knew their Bibles really well, right? They studied it. They memorized most of uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, before the time they were 13 years old. And he says this to them, 
you search the scriptures because you think that in them, in the scriptures, you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. So the scriptures talk about me, Jesus says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And in verse 46 of John 5, he says, for if you believed Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And in Luke 24, right after Jesus dies and rises again, he shows up to his disciples and he says this, oh foolish ones, great place to start, (laughs) and slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer that these things, suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Further down in verse 44, he continues on. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He's looking back at the Old Testament and he's telling his disciples everything that you knew and read and memorized, it was all pointing forward to me. So it's been said that the New Testament of the Bible is Jesus Christ revealed and the Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed. It's this shadow or arrow pointing towards the person and work of Jesus. And so we're going to spend this summer in the Old Testament. These are books, historical accounts, stories written hundreds if not thousands of years ago that all point to Jesus. And my hope, our hope here at Salt Company, is that you would walk away this summer not only amazed at this Bible, okay, People on the other side of the world are literally dying to get their hands on one of these. And you have it right in front of you. You have freedom to hear and read and interpret the word of God every given day. What a gift. But we don't want to be like the religious elite in John 5 that Jesus rebuked. Okay? We don't want to just love our Bibles. We want to love the one who our Bible is all about. We want to love Jesus. And so that's why we're here. We want you to fall madly in love with Jesus and to be in awe of his word. And so uh, we're going to dig in. We're starting in Genesis tonight. Um, but before we get there, I'm just going to ask you a, a quick question, all right? Have any of you ever felt lonely? Yeah. Ever felt like you really wanted to belong Wanted to feel like you were loved, like you had a true companion, whether that be a a friend or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Here's the deal. I know you have, okay? I know you felt lonely. I know you felt this longing to be loved and to belong and to have a companion because here's the deal. You're human, all right? If you're in this room, you're human. It's part of who you are to have this longing. And so maybe, for some of you, you can't help but think of the last couple weeks. Graduate college, you're in this weird in-between season of Salt Company and college just got done. I'm moving home. I'm already annoyed by my parents. I just want to be around friends, right? Or rewind a couple years ago, try not to give anybody PTSD here, COVID-19, 
COVID lockdowns, you're in isolation. Even introverts are like, get me out of my house. I want to be with people, right? We have this desire to be around and belong. But the reality is for some of you in this room, when I talk about loneliness or belonging, you can't help but think of a relationship. Again, whether that's a deep-rooted friendship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, whether that's a boyfriend or girlfriend you want, a boyfriend or girlfriend you had not long ago and they broke up with you, or you broke up with them, or maybe you're stuck in the friend zone. Anybody? No one wants to raise their hand. Yo, I survived the friend zone for five years, and I am living proof that you can make it out. Can I get an amen? Let's go. All right. Ellie Howell, everybody. Wow. Yeah, she got me out the friend zone, and she is a gem. She is an absolute gem. So uh, I want you to know this, Salt Company. You were made, you were made to belong. You were made to feel loved. You were made to have a companion. And I said I know this because you're human, but I also know this because, uh, really, you don't have to go any further than Genesis 1 to figure this out. So I'm going to just read a couple, couple verses in Genesis 1. It says, then God said, let us, that's an important word. If you have a physical Bible, you can underline us. Let us make man or mankind in our image after our, you can underline that, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you were made in the image of God. That's amazing. But did you know that we serve a relational God? Like, to look at these words, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. It's this doctrine called the Trinity. Anybody ever heard of it? Raise a hand. Okay. The Trinity. We serve one God comprised of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that means before anything else was ever created, our God was in relationship. How many of you have ever heard the saying, God is love? Probably everybody in here, whether you're a Christian or not. God is love. Well, the question we have to ask then is, how can a solitary God be eternally and essentially loving when love involves loving another? Like, if you are loving in your very core, that means you have to have something to love. And so if God has not forever been loving, that would mean he would need us. But the reality is, he didn't need us. He was eternally and essentially loving because of this doctrine of the Trinity. He already was loving at his core. There's a book called Delighting in the Trinity. If you're a reader, you will love it. It's by Michael Reeves. I'm going to read a couple quotes for you, okay? Creation, of which you and me are a part of, is an extension of the Father's eternal love for his Son. The Son goes out in creation to share the love of the Father. He goes on to say, the Father finds his very identity in giving his life and being to the Son. 
The son images his father in sharing his life with us through the gift of his spirit. It's amazing. And so guess what? You were made in God's image. And part of being made in God's image means you're relational. <laughs> you have this capacity to like be loved and to express love and to belong. And so we're going to flip one page. We're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis 2, all right? Uh, we're talking about Adam and Eve, first love story of the Bible, right? Adam and Eve, Genesis 2, we get to see a zoomed-in account of the creation of mankind that we just read about briefly in Genesis 1. So I'm going to fly through just a little bit. Genesis 2-7, Adam is swept up from, from the ground. God breathes life into Adam. And in verse 15, uh, Adam is put in charge of creation. God is telling Adam, hey, you can rule. You can do whatever you want. Like, listen to my voice. Rule over the Garden of Eden. But in verse 18, God says, it's not good that the man should be alone, and I will make a helper fit for him. He looks at Adam, and he's like, you need help. And so what he tries doing is he brings every living thing to Adam and says, here you go. Here's what you can use. But in verse 20, it says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God had brought every living thing to Adam, and he said, nope, you need more help than that. And for all the dudes in the room, y'all need help. Ladies, can I get an amen? Y'all need help, all right? I disciple some of you. You guys don't even know how to do your own laundry yet. Y'all need help, all right? But for Adam, God looked at Adam and he said, you, you need a helper. And so then here's what God does. You can read with me. Verses are on the screen. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the first marriage account. God creates the first marriage, and what's incredible is about how he designs marriage. Because think about it. At this point in the story, was Adam alone? Was Adam really alone? Like in the garden, in perfect intimacy with God, sin is not yet in the world he can talk with God. He can hear God. He can walk with God. Was he alone? No. And so then you have to be asking the question, well, then why is he creating Eve? What is this all about? Why is he creating marriage? Well, believe it or not, the first passages of Scripture are already pointing forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians 5, uh, we get this letter written to the church in Ephesus by a man named Paul. And he's trying to give this church in Ephesus instructions on how to live out a God-honoring marriage. He's trying to say, husbands, this is what you are to do. 
wives, this is what you are to do. But he actually quotes Genesis 2.24 and verse 31 and says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Sounds familiar, right? <laughs> we just read it. But he says this, verse 32, This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it, this verse, refers to Christ in the church. This refers to Christ in the church. And so if we're going to say, we want to know how Christ in the church is actually seen in Genesis 2, we actually need to take a little bit of a closer look at how God designed marriage in Genesis 2. Because one of the commentators I read wrote this quote. He says, marriage is an earthly picture of the spiritual relationship that exists between Christ and his church. Meaning God has been so kind to us to give us this earthly example for us to look at and to say, wow, this is a picture of a much greater reality that we have yet to take hold of. And so we're going we're gonna to spend just a few minutes here in Genesis 2, and I want to just point out a few things that should hopefully hop off the page to you and help you see how this is pointing forward to Jesus Christ. So we're back in Genesis 2, verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And that the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. First and foremost, just as Eve was made from Adam, humanity was made in God's image. Okay, we already talked about that. I'm not going to bore you to death with the details. But you can see in this Adam and Eve account how mankind was created in the image of God just as Eve was made from Adam. Then verse 23, the man says, and you have to believe, okay? You have to read this with emotion. This at last, like he's been waiting for this woman to be presented to him because all he's been seeing is pigs and cows and animals that can offer him nothing. And at last he sees bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. This shall be called woman, He's so excited because the reality is he is head over heels in love with Eve. And the reality for you, regardless of where you've been and what you've done, if you're in this room and you've been created in God's image, he is head over heels in love with you, just like Adam is with Eve. If you look back at Genesis 1, you see that God all along in creation has been creating all these things, speaking them into existence, and he says, and it was good. But the unique thing on day six, when he creates humanity, he says, and it was very good. It was very good that humankind would not just be spoken into existence, but as we see in Genesis 2, is handcrafted, that God would breathe life into humanity. It just shows his intimate love for you. Verse 23, we also see that woman and man are different, okay? She's given a new name because she is not a man. And that's why in verse 18, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper for him. Meaning, this man has weaknesses, and he needs a woman to counteract his weaknesses and bring strength 
to this relationship. Okay? Adam and Eve are made man and woman and husband and wife. They are distinct and different. And a pastor from the UK by the name of Sam Albury says, just as man and woman are created distinct and different, but are made for one another, the same can be true of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth are made for each other. And if you don't believe that, flip all the way to the end of your Bible and read about the new heavens and new earth in Revelation. This idea of heaven is going to come down and take up residence on this earth. Heaven and earth are made for each other. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, this is covenant language. How many of you have ever heard of the word covenant before? Okay, many of you. There's this unique thing about a covenant that is so contrary to our culture today. Much of our society today operates contractually, meaning I will do my part so long as you do your part. And if you aren't holding up your end of the deal, you're getting canceled. And I'm going to go find someone else that can scratch my back, okay? That is a contract, but the way God designs marriage is a covenant, and a covenant can be defined as this, an unconditional, permanent commitment for the benefit of the other. It is not self-seeking. It actually pursues the benefit of the other, is unconditional and permanent. It upholds its end no matter what the other side does or doesn't do. That's how God designed marriage. And the language he uses is leave if you have another translation, it might say abandon or forsake and cleave or bond. It has this intimate language. It's actually connotated with a sense of affection and loyalty. So leaving father and mother and clinging to a spouse, a covenant. And that's why you see in Matthew 10 and Mark, Matthew 19 and Mark 10, it says these words. What God has brought together, let no man, what? Separate. What God has brought together, let no man separate. It's meant to be a covenant. And in verse 25, you don't have to be bashful, okay? The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. We were made for shameless intimacy. Just as Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed... You and me were meant to be able to be naked and unashamed before our maker. We were meant to be fully seen, fully known, and unashamed before God. But the problem is, that is not your experience. Because if you read any further in Genesis, you hit Genesis 3. Adam and Eve decide that shameless intimacy with God is not enough. They want to be God. They want to take matters into their own hands. And so they disregard God and go their own way. And here's what instantly happens. They are ashamed. They try to clothe themselves. They try to hide. And God so graciously moves towards them. He speaks to them. He clothes them. But the reality is, 
He's just, okay? You and me, we have disregarded this incredible opportunity to have perfect intimacy with God because we wanted it our way. And so what God does to Adam and Eve and what he has done to every human that's ever followed in their footsteps, he has kicked them out of the garden. There is now this separation between God and man that leaves us in a place of, yes, guilt, because we're guilty, we all have fallen short, but also shame. Let me prove it to you, okay? How does it make you feel that God right now knows your sin? He knows that you've gossiped. He knows that you've lied. He knows you're greedy. He knows you've been complaining. He knows that you've been bitter and unable to forgive people that have wronged you. He knows about your porn habits. He knows about your substance abuse. He knows about your desire to stiff arm him and go your own way. If you're anything like me, that doesn't feel good. Heaven and earth are separated. We are out of relationship with God and we can't help but want to be like Adam and Eve, to cover up, to not only try and hide from God, but hide it from other people, to not tell them what's actually going on in our lives because we feel shame. And guess what? Our relationships are broken, not just with God, but with one another. This covenant intimacy that God created is now broken, and the end result is this contractual view of life. You see it in your friendships, right? You uphold your end of the friendship. They uphold their end of the friendship. But if they stop texting you back or they start gossiping behind your back, guess what you do? You go find a new friend because they're not holding up their end of the deal. And the sad thing is this is leaking into your relationship with God, okay? As soon as you fall short in sin, you're starting to think, oh my gosh, God must want nothing to do with me. I'm not measuring up. I'm not meeting his standard. You're missing this covenant that God designed because you're viewing life through a broken lens. But also, here's what else we're getting wrong. We are starting to look in earthly relationships for what only God can satisfy in friendships, in dating relationships, in group hangouts, you just so badly long to be known, cared for, and loved that we idolize and put priority on how much we fit in on this earth because what we are saying is Jesus belonging to you is not enough. God have mercy on us. But the good news is, God knew this was going to happen, <laughs> okay? And in Genesis 3, part of the, the great news following the terrible news is that he clothed Adam and Eve, and he used animal skins. He, he gave a sacrifice to clothe them. And actually, as you look back at Ephesians 5, we see that this was a sign too. 
because he starts talking about the husband's role in Ephesians 5, and he says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church followers of Jesus to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So God has looked at you. He sees your sin. He sees how you have viewed life through a contractual lens. He sees how you have prioritized earthly relationships and tried to find the love and belonging and acceptance that you so desperately want in other places. And here's what he does. He steps down from heaven onto earth, and he himself joyfully gives himself up that he might sanctify you. Meaning in his death and in his resurrection, he is saying to you, this is not a contract. Though you have abandoned me, you have forsaken me, I have not forsaken you. I am holding fast to you. I am clinging to you. I am covenanted to you. And if you would just forsake your sin, if you would just say, that is no longer true of me. I no longer want to do that anymore. And if you would say, Jesus, I believe in you alone. I believe in your life, your death, your resurrection. That alone brings me back into this covenant relationship with God. He says, come home. Experience this shameless intimacy that you have so badly been longing for. It's as simple as repent, forsake, abandon your sin, and cleave, hold on to, cling to the finished work of Jesus. And in Ephesians 5, here's our role, okay? If Jesus is the husband, the church is the wife, the bride of Christ. And wives are asked to do this. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I've officiated a handful of weddings, okay? Being in college ministry, that comes with the territory. <laughs> Some of you are in here. What's up? Um, this is a hot topic issue in our culture, submission, right? This idea of submit, no, never. But the problem is we're missing who the wife is submitting to here, right? This husband who looks at her and says, I have your flourishing in mind. I'm going to lay down my life for your good. I want to present you pure and blameless before God. Who wouldn't want to follow that? And that's exactly what Jesus has done for you. And so now as the wife, the bride of Christ, we're saying, I will gladly follow a God that would die for me. Are you kidding me? that he would see me in my darkest place and would say, that's my bride. I love her. I'm going to lay my life down for her. That just beckons this response to say, oh, Jesus, I want to follow you with all that I have. You know what's best for me. 
And so we see the sin that broke us apart in Genesis 3, Jesus is fixed. The sin that separated us in Genesis 3, Jesus has reconciled. And if you go back to all these things we see in Genesis 2, okay, in his covenant love, God has held fast to his people. Heaven meets earth in Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, putting on flesh, living the perfect life you couldn't, dying the sacrificial death that was needed to bring reconciliation between man and God. Heaven and earth meet in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And now, guess what? Because of what he has done, not what you can do, will do, or ever have done, you can experience shameless intimacy with your creator. With the God of the universe, you can be naked and unashamed before God. Don't take that too literally. Wear your clothes next week, okay? <laughs> but as I think about Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, I can't help but think of my own wedding day. Ellie and I have been married for five years. Some of you have heard the story, and I don't care if you're sick of it. It never gets old to me, okay? Five years ago, almost to the day, okay, May 27, 2017, Ellie and I get married. We get married in the small, historically preserved ground barn, Twin Lakes, Iowa, okay? And Ellie and I decided pretty early on we didn't want to see each other on our wedding day until she was walking down the aisle. So we spent all day getting ready, spending time with groomsmen, bridesmaids, taking pictures, and then the ceremony comes, okay? I'm standing at the front, and from the far back, there are these two really tiny doors, and they shoot open. And in that moment, here's what I see. Ellie's dad bawling his eyes out first, okay? <laughs> and second, I see my bride. I see Ellie in this eloquent white dress. In Honestly, I've never seen anything more beautiful in my entire life. <laughs> Preached several weeks ago about hiking to the top of mountains and seeing lakes in Colorado. Nothing compares to me setting eyes on my bride for the first time. And I can't help but think, wow, she is perfect. She is without spot or blemish. And then it hits me, okay? This like gospel bomb moment. That's exactly how God views me. <laughs> and so, yes, I weep because I see my bride for the first time on our wedding day, but I weep because I begin to understand that though I have a super jacked up past, I don't hide that from anybody, okay? I came to know Jesus as a 21-year-old at Iowa State University, Roll Clones, okay? Here's the deal. Now that Jesus has lived, has died, has risen again, has revealed himself to me by giving me the gift of faith, he now looks at me like I looked at Ellie. And he says, wow, that is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. I see you without spot or blemish because all God sees when he sees me is the finished work of Christ. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, the same can be said of you. Shameless intimacy before God because now he looks at you, he knows your past, he knows your present, he knows your future, and he says, I see you as perfect because of what Christ has done for you. And I'm telling you, that beckons a response. 
we can't just hear that message and stay still, okay? Here's three things that come to mind from me to you just to say, hey, here's what it looks like to begin to live this out and apply it. Number one, stop treating your relationship with God as a contract. Stop trying to measure up. Stop trying to earn his love and understand what I just said to you. That if you would simply say, God, I understand that I am a sinner and I understand I am in need of a savior and I understand that you have already paid the price for me. He now looks at you and says, you are my beautiful bride. This is covenant language that God is upholding his end for your benefit. Number two, enjoy shameless intimacy before God. And what I mean by that is you need to start confessing your sins. You don't need to hide anymore. You're not like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. You don't have to work hard to cover up your sin. You can stand before God and you can say, God, I've been greedy this week. God, I watched porn today. God, I've been lying about my college quiz scores to my parents because I'm about to drop out. God, I've been angry at my father who walked out on our family when I was 12. You need to start confessing your sin to God and confessing your sins to other people so that they can begin to speak life into you and remind you what is true of you and what is true of God. And lastly, hear my plea. Stop hoping for other relationships to fill you up in a way that only God can. God has been kind to us. He's given us a lot of great friendships. He's put a lot of really incredible people in our lives. But those earthly relationships are meant to just be a shadow, just a small glimpse of what it means to be fully known, fully loved, and accepted by God. Genesis 2 is a giant arrow pointing towards the finished work of Jesus. So my prayer for you is that you would, like me, look at this story of Adam and Eve through a new lens and say, God, though you've been kind, though you've given me earthly relationships, this is all about you. <laughs> that I can belong to you, be loved by you, be in this covenant relationship with you. That's what this is all about. So I want to pray for you. We're going to sing more praises unto our God because he's worthy to be praised. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is alive. Your word is active. And God, just as I see in Genesis 1, when you speak, things happen. Things change. God, as I look at Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Ephesians 5. I can't help but see how all along, from the beginning of time, your design is set up in such a way that you want relationship with me. Not because you need me. God, you alone are loving at your very core. You don't need me to prove yourself to be loving. But God, in your covenant love, while I was still a sinner... At Iowa State University, as a junior in college, you said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm going to lay my life down for you. I'm going to die for you despite the fact that you rejected me. 
You saved my soul. You brought me in. You cleaned me up. You continue to do that day after day. And God, I pray for each student in this room, God, that the same would be said of them, that they would place their trust in your covenant love. Not their love that fails and tries to measure up and make ends meet, but your love, which never quits, never forsakes, never abandons. And God, for the student who believes that they are too far gone, that they have outsend your grace, that they would take hold of this picture of a wedding day. That you don't look at them as their bride and see all the faults in them. You look at them and you say, wow, this is my beloved. You are perfect. You are without blemish because of Jesus, what you have done for us. So in light of that, God, help us now to sing praises unto you, to worship you, to fellowship with other believers in a way that's honoring to you because you're worthy of our lives. We pray in your name.